Welcome to the T's and C's. Tiso and Gentel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions podcast. Executively produced by Georgia Foriato. Welcome to the USA special of The Election Reflection. We decided to do a four-part series in the build-up to the presidential election. Tiso and I are not experts on presidential elections, so we're bringing on guests who are... Bringing experts in to cover everything from voter suppression, white supremacy, to the Electoral College. Welcome to another episode of T's and C's USA Election Reflection we are really excited today to be joined by Kenetta Hammond Perry, who is the director of the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre and is a reader in history. She is also author of the book London is the Place for Me Black Britain, Citizenship and the Politics of Race. Kenetta, it is so exciting to have you on the show because you are also from the States as well. No, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Not going to lie to you, Kenetta. The series so far, this is the third episode we've done. Me and Tiso have come away pretty nervous slash depressed about the election <laughs> and, and we are miles away from it. But as we know, what happens in the US is important for Britain as well, definitely. So I guess it'd be really good to talk to you a little bit about what this election means for democracy in North America. Particularly in the backdrop of 2020, it was always there, but I think the kind of idea of American democracy is really on the ballot um, this time around. Obviously, you know, we're looking at this Trump presidency that has from day one been about kind of disrupting on one hand, but also I think just exposing the cracks in this notion of American democracy. And I think that's one of the things that just sort of stands out to me. I think, you know, there've been a lot of conversations we were talking about earlier about this question of voting and kind of making sure that people vote. And, you know, there's this these whole initiatives around plan your vote, don't just vote, but like make a plan to vote. You're voting in the context of COVID, you're voting in the context of all of these ongoing campaigns for voter suppression. I mean, it's making me just think about these questions about, you know, once we vote, you know, even though we vote, there's a system in place that actually people's votes aren't part of the system that actually selects the president. Um, So we have this thing called the Electoral College. Um, And the Electoral College is an institution that's meant to actually, it's really kind of anti-democratic in the sense that it actually erases, um, you know, the will of the people and the kind of expression of the popular vote. And we've seen that happen in the election of Donald Trump. We saw that happen in 2000 with Al Gore. We saw that happen in 1876 with an election that actually ended reconstruction in the aftermath of the ending of slavery in the U.S. And so, you know, this idea of where these, the, the people's vote and how it comes to matter in this notion of American democracy, I think that's definitely on the table, you know, here again in this moment. And that's one of the things that I think we have to kind of think critically about no matter who gets elected, um, whether it's, I don't even want to say it, but, you know, whether or not the incumbent stays in office or whether or not we have, you know, a new a new president, a Biden, you know, Harris ticket that wins. I think we still have to ask some fundamental questions about the nature of American democracy and who's represented um, in this democracy. And I think there's still some fundamental structures that are in place that inhibit um, people's voices to be heard. I mean, and, and that's definitely one of the things that we saw in the last election um, and that I think is also on the table in this election. So one of the things we've seen in the UK and the US is excessive executive power. And 
the, the it seems like the system that we that is so kind of valued and talked about hasn't been working. Maybe is that one of the things that we need to go back and look at this idea that the, the legislature and the judiciary, they seem to be toothless because the, the guys in charge just seem to do what they want. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point. You think about the fact that like you almost forget that Trump was impeached. That should have been a big deal. But the idea of the, of where that was going to happen, it was going to happen in the part of the legislature, the Senate. And that's probably one of, again, one of the most undemocratic, um, you know, bodies within the kind of American political system in that, you know, it's meant to be this body where two senators are coming from each state. It's not representative of the populations of those states. But yet this is the body that came to decide you know, whether or not Donald Trump was going to be impeached in the House. Those charges were initiated there, but it was the Senate who was going to to um, offer that consent on that. So we don't see any movement around impeachment when it comes to the Senate. The Senate is also the one we, we have a Supreme Court justice that a lot of people look at that process that's happening right now as very illegitimate in the fact that you have, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg that dies, you know, I think less than 50 days before an election. You have you know, a Senate leader that moves ahead with this confirmation in an environment, you know, where people are already actually casting votes at this time. And this is the same Senate leader that when, you know, Barack Obama was president and you had the death of a Supreme Court justice happen months before voting actually started, you know, stopped the whole process, didn't even allow President Obama to actually, you know, put forth that nominee for consideration in that body of the Senate. And then you think about that institution in the last election was, you know, there were more votes cast for Democratic members of Congress than there were Republicans, but yet the Republican Senate has controlled that agenda, both in terms of that check on the the executive branch, but also sort of this remaking of the judicial branch. And that's one of the things, again, that I think we need to be thinking about what needs to change, who is actually represented in these bodies that are then, you know, shaping these, these different branches of government and shaping the decisions that are coming out of that. And so I think all of that is part of kind of what's on the ballot underneath what we're voting for and underneath what we what we should be talking about in terms of, of this election cycle. Could you explain to our listeners and Tisa and I that Electoral College, if the popular vote happens and then those votes, let's just say hypothetically, go into this building where the Electoral College sit, and then what happens? Do they just make a decision on whether they think that the popular vote is valid? So I'll try to kind of back up a little bit because I do think it's yeah. important to kind of talk about the the kind of roots of the Electoral College. It's going to be sort of the, the basics for sure. Um, yeah. But but I mean, the Electoral College, its history is rooted in sort of, you know, the early constitutional conventions and in, in the 17. 17- 80s where you're you know sort of trying to figure out this process by which this new nation is going to pick a president. And so, you know, there are debates about whether or not it should be, you know, a popular vote, whether or not Congress should let, select the president. And what they arrive at is this notion of the electoral college that very much aligns with the same way that congressional representation happens. And congressional representation happens as a result of kind of the the population in any given state. So any given state is going to have a number of elected representatives that are going to be going to Congress based on that state's population. Well, obviously, at the time this system was set up, 
the vast majority of populations in the South were also populations of people that were enslaved. And so part of the representation issue for those Southern slaveholding states was basically rooted in this idea of how do we represent the fact that we have this population of enslaved people who's not going to vote. We don't want to lose the idea that they are also part of this population. So it was really the creation of the Electoral College was really a concession to slaveholding states to basically say that, you know, if we did this by popular vote, we know the northern states who where slavery is not necessarily entrenched in society in the same way it was going to give the northern states an advantage over the southern states if enslaved population was not counted as a part of those apportionments of, of congressional seats. And so the same number of congressional seats that a state has based on their population amounts to the same number of electoral college votes that a state has in selecting the president. Essentially what's happening is that when a state is you know, you go through your election cycle and the state has a popular vote. And technically, the electoral college votes or the number of votes that they have in the electoral college is supposed to follow the will of that popular vote. Um, it's not necessarily always written in stone that it has to happen there. I actually think there are a couple of states that have an exception to that, that rule, but it's that's the kind of general protocol is that the electoral college, um, the number of of represent, representatives that you have in the Electoral College would then follow the will of the popular vote of that, that state. I think the, the problem, though, you know, in terms of thinking about the Electoral College is, though, at the end of the day, I don't think there's any, like, real consensus about, like, how the, the members of the Electoral College are selected. Um, and at the end of the day, the Constitution still mandates that it's not the popular vote that decides this. It's actually what these electors um, decide and, and these kind of protocols, but but the law itself is sort of still giving power in the hands of a really kind of small elite group of people that then ultimately have the power to elect the president. So, I mean, to some extent, this idea of the popular vote and, and the will of the people, you know, one can kind of really question that because at the end of the day, you know, in terms of what the Constitution outlines, um, it's these electoral votes that are actually doing the selection of the president. And I think we saw that, um, the consequences of that most recently in 2016, but also even before that in, in, in 2000 with um, Bush v. Gore. And so, you know, in both of those cases or in 2000, you had the Supreme Court sort of step in to kind of decide where those kind of disputed electoral votes were going to go. And then in 2016, you, you literally just sort of saw Trump um, dominate the, the electoral college map and not necessarily um, the, the popular vote where, where you had Hillary Clinton still winning three million more of the actual popular vote across the country. Kineta, that is honestly the clearest, most concise explanation of the Electoral College I've ever mm -hmm. heard. But my mind's blown on a kind of frustrated level that it's so open to abuse of power. It makes me think this is America's reckoning with its past. It's almost like... Trump, the Trump ticket is trying to, like in his slogan, make America great again. It's, it's trying to reflect the past. And Biden, obviously, it doesn't represent a future, but it's the possibility of a, of a potential different future, a forward looking future. And to kind of link that to the UK, uh, the lessons that we have, it's like the idea that the same thing here, we're trying to reckon with our past. In the context of empire here, the potential of a different past that's free of all that. So, quite interesting to me, this idea that. These things are still 
part and parcel of American politics, the idea of the Electoral College that's kind of linked to slavery. But this is because that nation hasn't reckoned with this, that narrative at all fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, you know, we're still sort of, you know, the kind of foundational institutions of American democracy are still rooted in the kind of maintenance of the plantocracy. And I think that's still a problem. I think that's still something that, again, we need to be having conversations about um, in terms of what needs to be dismantled, regardless of who gets into the White House um, or who stays in the White House in this election. And I think that those are things that are really important. And that's, for me, why thinking about all of this in the context of 2020, in the context of the kind of, you know, different kind of ability to notice what's not working, um, that I think that's one of the things that COVID-19 just sort of brings up for me is just you know, you really sort of see what do we not need to go back to um, regardless. And I think it's one of those things um, as well that we need to kind of think about those institutions and those ways of performing a kind of democratic governance that is not representative of the majority of people, but also, you know, who's left out of those so-called really undemocratic institutions that are purporting to be democratic. I wanted to just pick up on your point that you said, Tisa, about Biden possibly representing the future no, or progress. No, I didn't say he yeah, did. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but what I think is interesting about that yeah. is that in the UK and the US, both electorates or both populations had the possibility of having some kind of socialism mm-hmm. and we rejected it. So that, that happened, the Democratic Party rejected Bernie Sanders and we obviously rejected Corbynism twice running. So it's like the the question is around either like far right politics and leaders or a right wing centrism. I know I'm not necessarily saying anything necessarily that profound, but it's like question is like continue as normal or do we respond in a way that is kind of barbaric? It isn't necessarily that we the response is or the possible policy response is for something what would seem like utopian. That's what it feels like to me. Like I just feel and I know obviously people that are campaigning for the Democrats in the US feel a lot of them feel torn about this because it's not like Biden is necessarily represents a, a radical politics. And we've got the same thing in the UK as well. Like George, our editor, calls um, Keir Starmer Blair 2.0. Like we don't actually call him Keir. Um, we, call him, we call him Blair 2.0 in our WhatsApp chat. But it's it's fascinating, but it does make me feel really sad, to be honest, because it's like, where's the hope? I always feel when I see this moment, I always think to myself, guys that are reactionary, Trump keeps talking about Antifa and all these kind of things. But it's the fear that these kind of forces that if these if they let these forces unleash, they will change society completely. And it, this is this is a, it's a kind of a fear. And I see it run through the fear in the UK that somehow that if the left politics become the, the dominant politics, there'll be anarchy and everything will fall apart. Yeah. Whereas and, we actually have a version of anarchy right now, but it's yeah. just anarchy that is in control of the, the rich and powerful. And they can do whatever, yeah. they can literally do whatever they want. <laughs> like, so, it's so it's so bizarre, isn't it, how it gets twisted in that way? I guess if I were to kind of think about, you know, some of the, the similarities, um, you know, or just, not similarities, because that's that's too easy of a word to say, but it, but it is, I guess, as a historian, I am constantly sort of looking at the way in which, like, the narrative that the far right needs to, you know, historically to be true, to actually legitimate their positions. And it's interesting how, I think, on both sides of the Atlantic, but also just, I think, more globally, when we think about sort of the kind of, you know, um, 
you know, resurgence of a different kind of far right politics that's that's sort of operating differently and operating in a kind of much more unabashed kind of way. Um, I think, you know, again, thinking about, you know, all the different histories that have to be sort of suppressed and reworked and mythologized to actually make those sort of, you know, those sorts of claims. Like, you know, if you even think about the Brexit vote, this idea of taking back control and it's just like back from what? And and then, you know, the idea of this Trump and this kind of make America great, this kind of mythologizing of, of a past that great for whom it's just sort of, again, that kind of, that kind of questioning that I do think, um, you know, the context of the political moment is kind of asking, uh, you know, some different sets of questions. So I think, I mean, to your point, Chantel, about, you know, where is the hope? I, I definitely don't think the hope is in kind of like the halls of power at all. I, but I do think, I do think people are are really questioning and really questioning, you know, this idea of like, I'm not just voting for, you know, a president, like I'm not just voting, you know, what does my vote mean? How does my vote work? And I think, you know, those sorts of, of questioning of the these these kind of, you know, time held institutions, um, I think, you know, to me provides a kind of opening, a necessary opening um, that I think is is useful and still can be can be productive. I think I think it's really interesting your point actually Kinesa and I think you have actually given me a little bit of hope because I feel like there is this the way or the way the far right have captured the mainstream through a reactionary politics and sort of a mythologization exactly what you say that is running out of legitimacy because a lot more people are sort of questioning those things that they're saying. I think there's a long way to go on it, but I definitely think like when we started talking about this stuff like four years ago, T, there was definitely a lack of within like within our everyday lives or even within like mainstream media, there was definitely a lack of questioning of what they were saying, not necessarily condoning what they were saying, but they were just like, well, that's just their opinion. But I think you are seeing more questioning of that myth- mythologization but there's so much so much to do so so much to do we're at the beginning stages of yeah. that questioning yeah. absolutely <laughs> i think the pandemic compounded things and made things people to see the system as it is so the pandemic allowed people to see capitalism in crisis mm. and if you at certain points in the pandemic you have to see the inner workings and the inequality which is a bit more a bit more starker than you would do normally and it and it compelled people to act in a certain way so Compounded with this on top of the Black Lives Matter moment, I think that these things are like one-off historical moments, right? That happen like quite close to each other and it allow people to see a certain lens on certain events. And so unfortunately for Trump, he ended up in this so he can see his fuckeries a bit more. So um, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining us, Kineta. I, d- I feel less depressed as I did on the last episode. That's no shade to our other guests, but our other guests were brilliant. But I don't feel as like, I feel a little bit more hopeful than usual. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I still think, you know, again, there's, there's, these are, it's, it's big systemic change. And I think at the end of the day, ele- an election is just never going to, um, never going to really deliver that. And I think, you know, that's the one thing that I'm just kind of, I'm hopeful that people keep an eye on a bigger, um, you know, need for kind of, you know, change and overhaul it. And I think that's, that's the thing that, you know, I do think, 
um, you know, 2020 has opened up different kinds of possibilities to, to your point, so about about seeing, about noticing, about, you know, possibilities for, for recognizing solidarities that might not have been um, possible to recognize and imagine um, beforehand. So it's not, you know, I don't think it's, I don't want to sort of say that it's all, you know, um, you know, kind of flowers and cherries moving moving forward or anything like that. Um, but it but it is about, you know, keeping an eye on the structural change that I think is necessary and, and the kind of structural indictment of of kind of um, these ideas about democracy and these myths about democracy that aren't working for people in their everyday lives. What a brilliant place to end. Thank you so much, Kinetta. You're amazing. Guys, we'll see you next week for the final episode of the Election Reflection. Bye. Thank you for listening to the T's and C's with T's and Chantel. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. 